So this is probably one of the hardest things that I'm going to have to share with you. Uh, I come with uh, some heavy news, sad news. Uh, as hard as change and transition is for anybody, uh, I thought that it would be best if you heard it straight from my lips before rumors start getting around. But um, I've been asked to resign to resign from wearing my signature black outfit on Sundays. <laughs> yes, nervous laughter, get it out. <laughs> the shirt that I've been wearing every single Sunday for years on end. Now I have eight black shirts that I don't know what to do with because they told me that against the black curtains and the backdrop, I just looked like a floating, talking head. <laughs> Which apparently, that is what I am because I told them, no, change the color of the curtain. <laughs> I don't care if it's pink, just change it. And they said, no, you have to change your shirt. Which goes to prove that the adjective lead or senior means nothing before my role, pastor. They also said, well, Sung, it'll make you look more warm and more approachable, which I thought, great, that's all I want is people coming and giving me hugs. <laughs> so, now that the, the, the elephant is, you know, we've talked about the elephant in the room, let's uh, go on as we dive back into Psalm, the book of Psalms. Let me just start off with a, a story here. When I got married, one of the many things that my wife, Amy, made fun of me about was that I cleaned everything in the house with Windex. <laughs> Every dirty problem I encountered had just one solution. And so there's a spot on the counter, well, fix that with Windex. You got a spot on your uh, stain on your shirt, well, spray some Windex on it. Your teeth need whitening. Yeah, try brushing with Windex. Well, over the years, uh, she has helped me to see that m the most cleaning problems around the house need different solutions. So we're like at the opposite end of the spectrum now. We have solutions for everything. Shoot, even in our shower, we have like 15 different things just to clean your body with. Just for context here, before I got married, I lived in a house with a bunch of guys, and we had one bar of soap for all six of us. <laughs> and we washed everything with it. Our bodies, our hair, our clothes, uh, our uh, dishes, yes, even our teeth. Now, now that I'm married, we have all kinds of bottles and tubes and brushes and special soaps and sponges and razors. I mean, we even have like a Bluetooth speaker in our shower and we have a separate bar of soap for every single person in the house. Evidently, that is what you need for a total clean body experience. Now, a lot of people, when it comes to talking about questions of faith, think that there are a bunch of different solutions and different kinds of answers depending on whether you're talking to a believer or an unbeliever, whether you're talking to a mature Christian or a new Christian. But here's the thing that I have found over the years, that we all, Christians and non-Christians, doubters, skeptics, seekers, we all have the same questions and struggles about life and faith which means that the answers and solutions that we need are also essentially the same for everybody. 
Today we look at Psalm 73, which addresses the universal problem of doubt. Doubt affects us all, no matter who you are. In fact, I get asked pretty regularly, Sung, do you ever struggle with doubt? Whenever I, I get asked that, I look at them straight in the eye and I say, no, because only sinners struggle with doubt. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I don't really say that, right? Because the truth is, and you know this, doubt is not just for people outside the church. It happens to people inside the church as well. We all have doubts, yes, including pastors. We ask questions like, why does God allow certain things to happen and other things not to happen? So you're doing your best to obey God, and then you lose your job. Or she says no. Or you get the pregnancy test and it comes back negative. Or the cancer that was in remission now strikes back even stronger. And we, have all, we all have these same questions. I've asked those questions all my life. And for many, those questions cause them to even doubt their faith and make them wonder, is God even real? Well, uh, we're going to look at Psalm 73. What should I do with my doubts? If you have your Bibles, you could turn there. And as you turn there, uh, before we get started looking at Scripture, what I'd love for you to do is write this down as a framework for understanding this psalm that we're going to be talking about. Here it is. Doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world. If you've never had doubts, chances are that you have a superficial faith, that you've never really asked many questions, or you've simply inherited your faith from your parents, and it's never been your own, and so you've been spoon-fed all the answers. What we're going to see in this psalm is that God actually uses doubt to drive us deeper into him, to break up the childish, uh, spoon-fed faith that we have. And so doubt happens when the superficialities of your faith meet the realities of the world. We're going to start off in verse 1. The psalmist here, it's written by a guy named Asaph, who is the worship pastor of King David. And he expresses, he starts off by saying, surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Right, this is his statement of faith. This is what he believes in his head. But it is very different from what he feels in his heart. In verse two and three, this is what he expresses. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I nearly lost my foothold. And he says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. The psalmist is basically confessing that his doubt in God began with envy, which is almost always the case. Envy is when you want somebody else's life. You want their opportunities, you want their possessions, you want their comforts, you want their, uh, their, their talents or their looks. And this psalm helps to identify and label envy for exactly what it is. Envy is doubt in the goodness of God towards you. It is not necessarily doubting God's goodness, but God's goodness towards you. In other words, we think, often think of envy as that, that I am jealous or envious of somebody else. That it's a horizontal problem. The Psalms here says, no, 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 no. Envy is a horizontal expression of a vertical problem. The problem is that you are doubting in the goodness of God towards you, and that is why you envy. 
In fact, envy is so pervasive that in the human heart that it even made the Garden of Eden seem unsatisfactory. I mean, imagine this. Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are literally in a perfect place where they get to run around naked all day. And they still come to the point where they say, I'm pretty sure God is holding out on us. Let me ask you, what area of your life do you believe God is holding out on you? Take a moment, reflect on it, write something down. Maybe it's an area that you wish was different in your life. What area of your life do you think God is holding out on you? And then consider this truth, that envy has nothing to do with the condition of your circumstances and it has everything to do with the condition of your heart. That's what we're going to see as we continue to progress through the psalm. Now, what makes this even worse for the psalmist is that the people that he's envious of are not good people. They're actually what he calls wicked people, these arrogant social elites who are getting away with murder. And so in verse 4, he says this, They seem to live such painless lives. Their bodies are so healthy and strong. In other words, they're fit and attractive and well-off. They have front-row seats to every game. They fly first-class everywhere they go. Verse 5. They don't have troubles like other people. They're not plagued with problems like everyone else. In other words, translation, they have people who shop for them, who watch their kids, who clean their house, who landscape their garden. They wear designer clothes, and they send their kids to the most expensive private schools around. But then he says in verse 6 to 8, They wear pride like a jeweled necklace and clothe themselves with cruelty. They have everything their hearts could ever wish for. They scoff and speak only evil. In their pride, they seek to crush others. Right? This is what really gets the psalmist goat. He says, look, these evil people, these wicked people, they don't only just take credit for all their success. They actually are scornful because they think they're better than everybody else. They act like they deserve all the perks and privileges that they have, even while they trample on other people, just because they could get away with it. And then he goes on in verse 9, their mouths lay claim to heaven, and their tongues take possession of the earth. They assume that whatever is out there belongs to them, including getting first dibs on heaven. But the truth is, they don't even really see a need for God. They may tip their hat to religion, but really they feel fully sufficient in themselves. They say, what does God know? They ask, does the God, does the Most High even know what's happening? And he concludes by saying, look at these wicked people enjoying a life of ease while their riches multiply. Now before we go, go on, and before we get too self-righteous here and say, yeah, I hate those arrogant social elites, let's consider this. Aren't we just like the wicked people that the psalmist is talking about? Right? When you are blessed with good things, don't you usually attribute it to your hard work and intellect? I know I do. Right? And like the wicked, when you're doing well, don't we tend to forget our need for God? Isn't that why we tend to pray less when everything is going well? 
Right? That just shows our, our independence from God. We don't pray when things are going well because we think we have everything under control. So let's not get too proud ourselves. Yes, this is what the wicked are like, but it's also what our hearts are like as well. And then the psalmist continues and he reveals the reasons why he feels justified for feeling envy towards the wicked. And he says this in verse 13 and 14. Did I keep my heart pure for nothing? Did I keep myself innocent for no reason? I get, I got, I get nothing but trouble all day long. Every morning brings me pain. He's saying, look, I've gone out of my way to trust and obey God. And let me tell you, I don't think it's worth it. I give sacrificially to the church, and I'm still under financial constraints. I waited to have sex until marriage, and my marriage is still struggling. Maybe all the stuff that I believe about God isn't true after all. Didn't I keep my heart pure? Didn't I keep myself innocent? For what? How many of you have ever felt that way? I know I have. I've been there, done that. And so he expresses his justification for his doubt and his envy. But then he goes on in verse 15. And then this is kind of a turning point for him. He says, if I had really spoken this way to others, I would have been a traitor to your people. There was something about verbalizing that statement that woke him up, that jarred him. And that's one of the values of praying out loud or even writing your prayers out because it helps you begin to hear and to see what you're really thinking in your heart. And basically, the psalmist is saying, look, he's admitting that he, the reason he was serving God was because he believed God would make his life easier. I imagine the Holy Spirit would, would have come down to the psalmist and maybe asking that question and maybe asking us today, why are you serving me? Are you following me because of what you think you could get from me or are you following me because you want more of me? Those are two very different questions. Are you following God because of what you can get from him or are you following him because you want more of him? Just a story to illustrate this, the difference between these two things. When I was in high school, I had to take an elective class in order to graduate high school. And uh, I had to choose between uh, several different arts and humanities. So I had the choice between theater, drama, painting, and classical music. Now, no offense to the artists here, but I had no desire to take any of those classes. Finally, in the end, I decided, well, I think classical music would be the least painful out of all of those options. Boy, was I wrong. I mean, that class was excruciatingly painful, mainly because the teacher wasn't that great, and we learned a lot about music theory and all those things, and despite all that, I worked hard in the class, and yes, I learned about Bach and Beethoven and Mozart and Chopin, but I, I did all that. I worked hard because, not because I really enjoyed the class, but because I didn't want to blow my GPA on an elective class. And the reason why I didn't want to blow my GPA was because I wanted to get into a good college. I wanted to get into a good college so I could get a good job, and I wanted to get a good job so I could make a lot of money. In other words, I was using classical music to get a good job, to make a lot of money. Fast forward 20 years, uh, and, and now I occasionally spend a lot of money 
to buy tickets in order to experience uh, some great classical music. Right? I mean, if you buy tickets, I mean, they're not cheap. They're pretty expensive. And then one day it occurred to me, as we were shelling out all this money to go to a concert, this orchestral performance, it occurred to me that in high school, I studied classical music simply so I could make a lot of money. And here I am, 20 years later, spending a lot of money to see and hear great classical music. Right? The irony of it all. The difference is that in one season of my life, I found classical music to be very useful for me. It was a means to a greater end for something else. Now I find myself in a place where classical music isn't just useful, it's actually beautiful. It's not a means to something else, it is actually the end in itself. And the psalmist realizes that he has been serving God not because God is beautiful, but he, find, he found God to be useful. Let me ask you, which approach best characterizes your relationship with God? Is he useful to you, or do you follow him because you find him beautiful? Is he a means to a greater end, or is he an end in, in himself? Because how you answer that question greatly determines how you will respond to doubt and pain and disappointment in your life. Doubt can be the means through which you come to know God more, or it can be the excuse for which you keep God at a safe distance. And the difference between these two responses is dependent on whether you see God as simply useful or you see God as beautiful. So we're going to see that doubt can actually be an incredibly positive catalyst for spiritual growth, or it could be a very negative distraction, right? We see the psalmist saying, look, my foot almost slipped. I nearly fell, which is a metaphor for doubt. My, my security that was in my faith was shaken. So let's go back to the question that we asked based on, on the sermon title. So what should I do with my doubts? I have four suggestions based on the text that we're going to read in the rest of the psalm here. Four suggestions about what should I do with my doubts. First of all, I would say this. First, doubt your doubts. If you want to be fair-minded, then you must not only doubt your faith, but you must also doubt your doubts about your faith. Right? Notice, the psalmist does something here that most people do not want to do. He is honest about the source of his doubt. He says, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, he's saying, look, I would not have been angry at you, God, if you had allowed the wicked people to prosper, if I had not wanted a piece of the pie. I wouldn't be angry if I didn't feel like I was somehow being shortchanged and not getting my fair share of that. And the psalmist admits that if, he, if, he had not, if life had not been going so badly, that he would not have been bothered by all the prosperity of the wicked at all. Now, he's not saying that uh, doubt is honest or dishonest. It's just, we just have to realize that in our doubt, it is a mixture of both honest and dishonest motives. And so the thing that we can see here is the psalmist, he doesn't condemn doubt. So we as a church, we don't either. You have questions, you have doubts, welcome to the club. That's all of us. The psalmist doesn't condemn doubt as evil, but at the same time, he doesn't, he doesn't allow doubt to paralyze him. 
In fact, we see this in the ministry of Jesus. When Jesus is talking to skeptics and, and, and uh, uh, doubters and seekers, you see this unique approach that Jesus takes. Jesus both respects the question enough to not condemn the questioner, yet at the same time, he doesn't respect the question so much that he coddles the questioner. It's a unique balance. And so it is with the nature of our doubts. Yes, doubt your faith, but also bring the same kind of doubt to your doubts. That's the first suggestion. Second suggestion, come regularly to Grace Ann Arbor. Verse 16 and 17, it's right there in the text. Okay? Now, before we get there, look, doubt often presents itself as more intellectually, uh, uh, more intellectual than it really is. Right? But doubt is never purely just an academic matter. It always involves personal experience. And we saw this in the Psalms here, right? He knew about injustice, but it finally moves from an academic matter to a personal matter. And as a result of that, he almost loses his faith. So you do not arrive at doubt simply through logic and reason. And the only way you're going to climb out of doubt is that you have to go beyond just simply logic and reason. You most likely have come to the place of doubt because of personal experience, whatever that is, whether seeing injustice around the world or, or you got burned by a church or something. And so the only way that you will get through doubt and climb out of doubt is actually because through personal experience itself. So oftentimes I will hear people say, yeah, I came to the university, I read all these books uh, written by skeptics, so I lost my faith. That's not the total story. Because you know that, that that wasn't the only factor. You also had friends and professors who laughed at and mocked your Christian faith. And if you, that environment caused you to lose your faith, it will be this environment that will actually help you lead you back to faith. And so that's why the psalmist says, so I try to understand why the wicked prosper, but what a difficult task it is. And then he says, then I went into your sanctuary, O God, and I finally understood the destiny of the wicked. See, being a part of, of a church is a vital part of growing your faith and dealing with doubt. Because doubt masquerades itself as more intellectual than it really is. And when you deconstruct doubt, doubt is a condition of the soul more than it is uncertainty of the mind. We think of doubt like, oh, I have these questions in my head. No, it's a condition of your soul. And the psalmist says, look, I participated in singing and worshiping and praying and reciting and listening. And if you're here today and you're saying, well, so, Sung, are you suggesting that I come to church even though I'm not a Christian, even though I have doubts, even though I'm still seeking? You want me to come and engage in singing and listening and praying? And Yes, absolutely. Because it is not a fair battle otherwise. When you are Monday through Saturday, you have all these sensory data coming at you that is convincing you that God is not real. And this is the one place that you could come and you are immersed in an environment where your senses and your intellect are engaged by praying and reading and reciting and listening and be reminded that yes, God is real and he is present. And so second suggestion, come regularly to Grace Ann Arbor. And in 63 days, Grace Ann Arbor West. Number three, compare Christ to other footholds. He says, 
remember in the early part of Psalms, he says, I nearly lost my footing on this, on this foothold. But then at the end of the Psalm, he says, surely you place them, these wicked people, on slippery ground. You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. He's saying, look, the reason why I can trust my faith is even though it is on shaky ground at times, is that their faith is on something that is like slippery ground. It will not stand the test of time because everybody places their faith in something. That You place your hope in something as an act of faith. Christianity is not the only foothold that requires a leap of faith. So for example, let's take the problem of evil and injustice in the world today. That is a problem for Christians because on the surface, it seems like you cannot reconcile all the evil and wickedness in the world with the existence of a loving, a good, and powerful God. However, it is just as big of a problem, if not, I would say, bigger problem for people who do not believe in a good and loving and powerful God. Why? Because if you have a naturalistic worldview, right, it is completely natural and expected for the strong to eat the weak. And so if a natural disaster comes and kills thousands of people, well then, it's only survival of the fittest. In a naturalistic worldview, you have no basis for outrage because hostility, brutality, cruelty, and yes, even violence is completely natural and normal. So if you believe in God, your foothold might be shaky at times, right? Why would God allow evil in this world? But if you do not believe in God, then evil and injustice is still, and again, I would say even a bigger problem because you cannot explain why we feel injustice towards the world, uh, towards evil and injustice in this world. And so if you're at a place where you say, well, I, I just can't believe in the Christian faith, right? There's, it's a leap of faith. Well, you have, to take a, you have to take a leap of faith no matter what. You have to place your faith in something. And maybe some of us would say, well, I place my faith in myself. And I would say, the longer you live, the more you realize this, there will come a point in time in your life when God will bring you to the point where even you come to the end of yourself. And then what will you place your faith in? And so... Just understand, no matter what you place your faith in, whether it's Christ or anything else, compare Christ to all these other footholds, and you will quickly realize that all these other grounds is like, like sinking sand. Right? That's the song we sing, a hymn that we sing. Finally and lastly, I would say this. Focus on Christ. Even in the midst of your doubt, verse 25 and 26, I love what the psalmist says. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. When you look to Christ, there you see a person who experienced greater doubt and greater darkness than you and I will ever experience, right? Because he was completely faithful to God, and yet God hid his face from him, God the Father. God the Father abandoned his son while he was on the cross. As he poured out the punishment of sin and his wrath upon his son, he did it because he, Jesus was taking our place on the cross. He experienced a darkness and doubt that we deserve to experience, and he put it upon himself so that you and I, we would never have to go through that kind of doubt, to go through that kind of darkness. 
Yes, it doesn't take away the questions of faith. It doesn't take away our struggles and our doubts. But we can be made sure that in him, we have a foundation that is sure and will never leave us. Would you all stand? Let's stand together. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, and and let me just commit ourselves to the Lord today. So God, we thank you for who you are and what you've done. Even when our eyes tell us otherwise, even when the evil and the injustices in this world overwhelm us, we are reminded again and again of not only your goodness, but your goodness to us. And so today we give you thanks. We look up to you to give thanks for all the good gifts that you have given us. It is not by our own hands and our own strength, but every good and perfect gift comes from you. And so God, we stand humbled and in awe of your generosity, of your sense of giving to us, of being called your children and adopted into your family. And so God, we sing from the bottom of our hearts, not because we find you useful, but we want to sing. We want to find you so beautiful beyond comparison that our hearts just overflow in worship and adoration of you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.